Hello and welcome. I'm Aki Kwasani Hussein, and this is the Expert Review Podcast. This is the second part of a two-part podcast looking at the complex relationship between India and the offshore jurisdictions, in particular focusing on British Virgin Islands, the BVI. In this podcast, we focus on those times when, to quote, when things go wrong. In other words, when stakeholders, trustees and service providers are faced with investigations or inquiries from competent authorities based locally or in overseas jurisdictions and understanding, more importantly, what their rights and obligations should be and maybe. In this regard, I'm absolutely delighted to introduce our expert for this podcast, Maithili Katsaris of Floodgate LLP in London. Maithili leads the India Desk and the Luxury Assets Group at Floodgate. He's dual qualified in England and India. Maithili is a star lawyer, is recognised by Legal 500, Chamber and Partners and the India Business Law Review for specialisms in cross-border acquisitions and joint ventures, with particular expertise on advising entrepreneurs and business interests in an array of assets, real estate, manufacturing, hospitality and leisure. More importantly, Maithili and I have worked very collaboratively over the years on, on a number of very um, interesting cases. And I'm, as I say, delighted to have Maithili here. Good morning, Maithili. Hi, Aki. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Right. So let's get started then. So I think, as I mentioned earlier, you know, what this podcast is, is aiming to do is to look at those situations that are a little bit contentious, situations where clients are faced with investigations or inquiries from competent authorities. I guess my very first question to you would be, what should functionaries do when a letter comes through the post or more likely these days into an inbox demanding that information be shared or some action be taken? Yeah, I think it's quite important because these emails come in either from the authorities directly or more often than not in the BVI, they tend to get sent to a registered agent and the registered agent from there passes it on to the directors. And, you know, in my experience and having worked with you actually over the years, I think what we both tend to tell directors is to um, look at it and look at it quite impartially when it comes through and actually go back into the company's status because more often than not, the transactions or, or the inquiry tends to be for a period that is in the past. And in many circumstances, the company no longer exists, has been struck off, has been liquidated. I mean, there's a various set of scenarios. So I always do advise directors or uh, authorized agents when they receive a request to really look at it, go into the history of it and actually check what the status of the company is as a first step. I think the next steps would be to involve legal advisors. Where I have been working with directors of offshore companies, I tend to get in touch with Harneys, depending on the jurisdiction where, you know, we've worked together. And I know that, you know, what you and I tend to do is really look at what information has been set out in the notice, really just to enable the directors to determine whether this notice is proper, whether it's liable to challenge, whether actually there's any information in there that helps them try and get an understanding of what is the purpose of the request, who is the requesting state, what is the nature of the underlying investigation. You know, and I think it's quite important for directors to know who the taxpayer involved is. And I think these are the very basic details that we would tell anybody who receives a notice to look into and then actually get in touch with legal advisors like you and me. Yeah, no, that makes absolute sense. Is all of that information included typically? What is it that the authorities are requesting in their notices? And, and is it clear whether the checks and balances have been followed? 
I think in our experience, more often than not, okay, we don't tend to see notices which are thorough. So there is usually a request for historical information. And this historical information is in relation to a company which has been registered in the BVI, since we're talking about the BVI at the moment. And it requests a whole host of information about the company, its directors, the shareholders, the ultimate beneficial owners. They usually ask for registers. They tend to ask for accounts and financial statements and dealings that the company has entered into in contracts. But I think most requests ask you to provide details of the beneficial owners of the company together with whatever due diligence documentation either the registered agent or the directors might have. And that tends to be the sort of information information that's requested. It's a very macro, broad-based request for all and any information relating to a company. But as you said, I mean, more often than not, we don't necessarily see these requests being supported by actual information on the underlying investigation or who they're investigating or in which jurisdiction they're investigating. And that is for us as legal advisors and for the directors of the company quite vital to understand and determine. And I think this is where I, I would ask you the question back as to in the absence of these details and in the absence of this information, do these inquiries at all seem like fishing exercises or vexatious? Yeah, I think they can certainly come across as, as fishing exercises. I think the best way that I would describe these requests for information is it, it's a little bit like a case of putting these requests through a number of officials and what's popped out at the end is not always entirely intelligible to the plain reader. So exactly as you say, they're, they're not always formulated very thoroughly and they're not prepared with someone reviewing it that might not actually have any idea as to what is happening here or you know they may be new directors the company could have been sold and this relates to something that happened years ago and so there's really no clarity that is obvious from what is being written and so a lot of the time the discussions that we have again as you say it's, it's going back into the file and possibly previous owners of companies or something like that and and the other thing of course is that there is this distinction I think between I suppose a more bureaucratic approach to these notices, which is we have a notice and we have received a request and we must comply with the request. And I think obviously there are always obligations on private persons to, to comply with valid requests from, from authorities. But at the same in the same way, there are obligations on public authorities to to do their homework and to ensure that what is being sent to directors, to other functionaries is, is actually correct and in order. And I think if that's not the case, and that's really where we come in as lawyers, and we can see in fact that, that some of these are, are vexatious. And it sort of takes me to the next question, which is that we, within Harneys, obviously we are based in, in our various jurisdictions and we, you know, we've, we've worked closely together over the years. We are often at the tail end of these investigations where we're dealing with the immediate authority. We don't really have an overview, a global overview as 
to what is going on. And I would often look to you for that side of things. Are there any tips that you can provide when you're on the one side helping clients and perhaps on the other side working with lawyers in numerous jurisdictions in these sorts of cases? Yeah, I suppose we would tend to have a better overview of what's happening in different jurisdictions. And again, in my experience, what seems to have happened or what tends to happen is there are requests coming to different jurisdictions where, you know, these companies may have operated or have had assets. And they're very similar in the information that they're asking for, but they all tend to have the same, you know, sort of vague information and details on what the actual underlying request is. And we've had these discussions in the past where, particularly from uh, the perspective of the BVI, we talk about whether it's important for us to analyze and come to a considered view about whether these underlying requests are foreseeably relevant. So I think one of the things when coordinating between different jurisdictions and legal advisors in different jurisdictions that we tend to do as a start is to actually try and see whether all these requests are in fact similar, or whether there are any details that we can actually get out of any of these notices and you know examine what is foreseeably relevant. I think it's important to make the point here that generally there is an underlying requirement that parties to these information exchange acts, there is a requirement that they won't engage in fishing expeditions. You know, the OECD has in fact dumped these requests of being of a very highly speculative nature. And then where there is uniformity between different jurisdictions, given the absence of some contextual information, I think that's an important part of our coordinating exercise. And then where we do have information that we can share, it's important that everyone who's involved in the process is, is actually sharing that information. So we, we you know, so as directors of a company, they're able to try and get some sort of clue as to what's going on. And it's a really difficult situation for um, directors, former directors, etc., to actually make a proper decision or to, you know, have a considered view on things when they're operating in the dark and there's a jigsaw puzzle in front of them and they're trying to put things into perspective and trying to connect the dots. Absolutely. And do you think there are differences between the various jurisdictions, the various pieces of the puzzle, as, as you say? <laughs> There tends to be was. I think the experience has been that the requests go out to everyone, anywhere, you know, where the company may have operated or have assets. And they're all similar in nature. And there is a real task that most company directors are faced with on what to do. I think the, the issue is it's about process and protocol. I'm aware that BVI has precedent in terms of a court decision about how to handle these. Other jurisdictions may not. And, you know, there is little guidance that is given. So if we're talking about other jurisdictions where I've seen notices come through, whether that's Mauritius or Cyprus or even Switzerland, the, the processes are different and the procedures are different. So it's all about timing. It all comes down to timing and you know where the process actually allows for this entire procedure to uh, go ahead quickly. I, and my experience has been, and um, you'll also probably endorse this view, is that in the BVI in particular, more often than not, when um, there is been a notice requiring companies to produce information and a response is given to that and for requesting more information on what the purpose of the request is, things seem to just go very quiet for a long period of time. And sometimes it can be as long as 12 to 18 months until you hear back. So I think it often makes me wonder whether the authorities in the BVI, for example, are just sitting there as a postbox, just passing information on or whether they're actually engaging 
engaging with the information that they're being asked of. I'd ask the question back to you as to your own experience, given the various jurisdictions that Harneys operates in. What's your experience? Yeah, I mean, our experience is that certainly where requests are being received. One thing that's been really interesting is to see how common law principles have interacted with requests for information. In particular, in, as you made reference to the precedent in the BVI, you know, we have the, the seminal case of Friar Tuck and mm. the International Tax Authority there from a few years ago. And that was a case that we, within within Harneys, we, we worked on. And it was really, really interesting case, I think, where it reminded us all, I think, as, as lawyers, that it is rule of law above everything else. And when that gets forgotten and we become overly bureaucratic, Democratic in an approach, then we, we start running into problems. Really, also shown us the sort of the, the common law heritage of a lot of these jurisdictions. And I remember when we were preparing for that case, we looked very closely at the law in a number of other jurisdictions that had, uh, again, uh, UK overseas territories or crown dependencies in particular, but also under English common law principles. And so there is this whole concept that, yes, of course, an act can provide certain authorities to certain let's say, rights to public authorities to exercise power. But at the same time, those powers are are exercised on the basis of certain fundamental principles on which public authorities should act. So it goes to, you know, it goes back to sort of public law 101 that you do at university. And, and those are still very much, I think, at play. And, and as lawyers, it's always our obligation, I think, to remind the authorities that those are underlying principles. And I think that they certainly flow through common law jurisdictions jurisdictions that I've seen, although there are certain cases where ultimately the authorities would have been found to have acted entirely correctly. So Mm. it does also depend on a sort of case-by-case analysis. Of course. And perhaps actually this is the right time to talk about what the status of the BVI's commitment to public UBO registers is. I think this is around the world. There is a, a need or a demand for UBO registers to be made public. No, absolutely. I mean, the first thing is that the, the BVI is not particularly singled out in this respect. So there's been a common approach that the UK itself has taken to its overseas territories, which is to essentially require, there was, there was a political statement some years ago requiring the overseas territories to implement a public register of, of UBO information by a certain time limit. That time limit is currently set at 2023, but again, that is, it's, it's more of a political set rather than anything specified in, in law. We are aware that the overseas territories are generally have their obligations in mind and the, the fact that they do need to work with the UK on this one. I think that there is, and, and so the official BVI position is that these registers will be implemented when they become a global standard. That That is the, the position of, of, the, of the BVI government. Right. Uh, and, and that's fair. There is discussion at, at FATF level and acknowledgement at FATF level that this is not a, um, a, a global standard uh, yet. So having UBA registers privately, private for law enforcement purposes, but there's no there's no universal view on whether those should be public or not. And in fact, that's been recently challenged. But uh, I mean, I think that that's that's probably a fair fair assessment of where we are. We should talk about the recent challenge, but actually, before we just get to that, there is already obligations in the BVI for beneficial ownership reporting, isn't there? Because there's the Boss Act, as we call it, and that's uh, right. yeah, so there is a requirement 
for all companies and even partnerships, I believe, to report information regarding beneficial owner, but it's just kept by the registered agent or or it's uploaded onto a confidential database, which is only accessible by a competent regulatory authority. But, you know, now, given that we already have the BOSS Act, there's also an overall worldwide global commitment to having these UBO registers made public. What are your views on the most recent judgment in the EU Court of Justice? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting to watch this dynamic. I mean, where, where we are at present is, and, and I think it comes back to a dynamic between a rights-based analysis on the one side, looking at concepts of you know, rights to privacy, for example, and the rule of law and, and those sorts of things, versus a more bureaucratic approach, you know, which in some quarters would be described as doing things for the greater good, but that may trample over the rights of the individual in certain cases. Cases. And so I think that the recent case before the Court of Justice of the European Union is, is precisely, I think, on that point. And I think it, it looks to become a fairly seminal case in, in its own right. It's not exactly like the, the Friar Tuck case that we referred to, because the Friar Tuck case was more looking at the procedural anomalies that, that arose. I think here what we're looking at more of a rights-based assessment. So, you know, data protection, right to privacy. And again, we're not talking about concealing data from law enforcement. It is squarely on the issue of whether these registers should be public or not. And so very interestingly, across member states since that judgment, which occurred last week, I think it was earlier in November, we are now starting to see all of the UBA registers being suspended for public views. So so I think generally what we're seeing is that they're still available where you can show legitimate interest, but to the general public, no. And, And I think there's certain, you know, there's always a balancing act to these things. And so I think that's what we're seeing in in real time at the moment. So it's it's, it's a fascinating time to view this. Indeed, it is. I think there is a lot of pushback from lots of commentators and lots of experts about how this could stall global efforts to force countries to have open beneficial registers. But the court has balanced the view by saying there is a fundamental right of privacy and personal data protection issues, which is what it is seeking to protect. But yes, very interesting times. Very interesting times. And with that, I think we have to conclude our podcast. So thank you very much, Maitali, for joining me on this one. My pleasure. My pleasure, Matthew. Thank you. And uh, till next time. Bye-bye.